Welcome to the Core Kinetic Podcast. My name is Ben Cormack and I will be your host. The Core Kinetic Podcast aims to bring you clinically relevant information on topics throughout the clinical world. Also, some very, very special guests along the way bringing you their expertise. We hope to deliver this with fun, flexibility and also some good, solid, old-fashioned evidence. Nothing in this podcast constitute medical advice, but we hope you enjoy it anyway. Welcome uh, to this latest episode of the uh, Core Kinetic podcast. Um, this month, week, I always forget, I, I'm, I mean to do it in much better intervals than I ever managed to actually do it in. One day I'll become you know, beautifully fastidious in being able to, to arrange these things better. But I'm joined by um, the, the very smart John Kylie, who's come to talk to us. Uh, how are you, John? Uh, I'm really good, Ben. And yeah, nice to finally meet you and put an end to the face, our face to the name. Yeah, and I, and I would hope that you would say what a beautiful face it is. It is an amazing looking face. I'm stunned here with my mouth open, for sure. Yeah, that, that is perfect. Off air, un, not under pressure, uh, John's response may have been dramatically different to that, but I like the way that he fluffed up my ego in that sense. Um, so, John, could you just uh, kind of let everyone know uh, a little bit about who you are and what you do, please? Uh, yeah, so I guess what I am or what I have been for quite a while as a coach. So I've been coaching since I was 22. Uh, combat sports originally, but I've also worked kind of Paralympic sports uh, as a, a event-specific coach. <clears throat> um, yeah, uh, I've been around the block a couple of times. Uh, I've worked at Rugby World Cup, Soccer World Cup, Olympics, Paralympics, all in various different roles with with you know different countries. Uh, yeah, a lot in the general fitness realm. Uh, more and more over the past fifteen years, specifically in that kind of fuzzy space with return to play slash rehab, working hand in hand with. Uh, medical staff to try and get people back under conditions of extreme pressure where it's you know we have to get this person fit in two weeks or if this person can't hit this criteria in the next you know five days then they don't they don't come to the tournament um so in as much as i have a kind of a uh a speciality or an area of interest that's a bit unusual, that would be it. It would be kind of last gasp saloon type RTP. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. And what are your current roles, John? What, what's your day-to-day at the moment? So I, uh, I've i been working over in the UK for the past 15 years. I, I, I'm, I'm Irish, obviously, enough. I moved over to the UK to work as the head of strength and conditioning for UK athletics in the run-up to the Beijing Olympics. And then I stayed on for the London Olympics. After that, primarily because uh, my partner was, was back here in Ireland, I was offered a job by a university in the UK to work uh, as a supervisor on 
a professional doctorate in elite performance. So professional doctorate, uh, same level education level as PhD, with the distinguishing feature being it is where a PhD is set up to make a contribution to the academic literature, professional doctorate, it is to make a contribution to the domain. So in the practical domain. So I work with a lot of people in professional football, professional rugby, uh, some physios, again, working in professional sport, but I've also worked with people in, in circus, uh, people in kind of uh, business who are investigating decision-making, things like that. So it's a, it's kind of, a, yeah, it's interesting. Everyone is different. They're all experienced people with, you know, at least 10 years in, in, the, in the tank. So they're not like raw students. They know what they're doing. Um, so, yeah, I enjoy that. And that's what I've been doing for the past few years. To get back to the final uh, part on that, I've just finished up in the university I was working in, which is the University of Central Lancashire. And I'm moving to the University of Limerick in Ireland to work on their new professional doctorate. Uh, in performance and innovation. Nice. So you're, you're off back to the Emerald Isle? Yeah, well, I'm always kind of over and back anyway. It's, thankfully, it's only a short hop, as you know. Um, so, yeah, hopefully I'll keep a, a foot in each country. Very good. Well, that you know, that's a pretty impressive CV um, you've got there, John. And I, I must say that I've always enjoyed uh, reading, you know, some of your research, some of the stuff on periodization, some of the stuff you've done around stress, some of the stuff that you've looked at with kind of complex systems, etc. Um, so, so I've always found it, you know, a lot of your work and writing has always quite resonated with some of the ideas and, and, and stuff that, that, that interests me. Um, and you did a great podcast not that long ago with my good friend, Todd, um, who uh, good old Todd Hargrove, who's who's another great thinker, you know, and uh, shares a lot of these kind of um, these common interests. Now, so I'm going to put you under pressure. Then let's get into the nitty gritty of it all. Um, so one of the things that I think is a really interesting crossover um, between kind of the worlds of you know sports science and you know return to play, rehabilitation, pain, injury, etc. Um, is the idea of complex systems. Now, I think what interests me is so often, you know, we see very simple, you know, or the idea is there are very, very simple linear kind of, you know, ways that people get injured or, or ways that we can get people back to, to, to play and all these type of things. Um, so I'm just kind of interested in, in kind of, you know, just exploring a little bit about maybe what is um, a, a complex system and then maybe a little bit about why you kind of gravitate towards some of these things. Well, okay, so easy one to start, right? Yeah, um, I, I did say I was going to put you on. <laughs> well, yeah. So, okay, so let me start with a kind of basic definition of it. No, let me start a different way. We, I guess, are brought up thinking that things tend to work in a kind of robotic or linear way. Yeah. And that's been the way it's been in, certainly in this kind of sports sciences and the sports training, athletic performance world that, that I most live in. And it's very much a, a, a linear interpretation of the conventional biomedical model. Yeah. If I have pain, 
it's because there's some structural damage. Yeah, you know, if I get if I get stronger, it's because I, you know, I squat three by eight for 12 weeks or whatever it is. It's very much physical change, or sorry, physical perturbation drives physical change uh, in a predictable way. Yes. So you mentioned, sorry, I, I'm just going to go off and one here, Ben. So you can oh, go make I, I, I love that you're <laughs> going to go off, John. It is exactly what I would do. Okay. So let's bring it back. You, you mentioned periodization. Um, periodization is, at face value, what seems like a very sensible way of dividing up a period of, of time, uh, be it a season or a quadrennial for an Olympics or whatever it might be, break it down into manageable chunks, then kind of reverse engineer what you want to happen. Okay, well, I want them to be strong, fast, powerful, et cetera, et cetera, over here. So I'll do strength first. Uh, how do I do strength? Well, three sets of 10, eight exercises, an hour and 15 minutes in the gym or whatever it might be. Then we have this very much off the shelf. Uh, here's what you do. Here's the building block approach. Let's do that. And that would work fine if we were, if we were robots, if we operated in anything even vaguely resembling a linear, predictable way. But a complex system, uh, complex adaptive system approaches, well, you are composed not of one system or one process or one entity, but multiple integrated entities. And evolution was clever enough to kind of fortify us with, you don't work in one way. You are robust because you were given so many different ways you can accomplish the same task. Now, just to say that back in a, in, a, in a different way, we're all these integrated biological, neurological entities. We can accomplish any task that is set us a vast diversity of ways. Now, the more we do a task in specific ways, the more we're inclined, the easier it is for us to, to stay on, on that path and to use that solution in the future. But essentially, that's why we are robust is because we can do things in so many different ways. Running is a good example. Uh, you will never, ever take the same stride twice. You can be on a treadmill for the rest of your life. You will, uh, you know, at the same pace, you will never take the same stride twice. There will always be multiple differences, and those differences aren't accidental. Those differences are there as a way of dispersing load, of sharing mechanical stress and neurological stress as well and of dispersing that load. And, you know, sometimes we get injured or we get sensitivity and we, we find a way to navigate around. Uh, coming back to complex adaptive systems, I guess what is a complex adaptive system? Key components are it's multiple integrated entities. The more you use them, the more they adapt. That adaptation can be positive or negative, but they change. Uh, they are not necessarily predictable. Uh, and that's a big deviation from our conventional biomedical model, which assumes that everything is predictable. If I do this, or if you do this type of training or this type of this rehabilitation exercise or whatever it might be, you have this operation, there's a predictable outcome at the end. But, but 
I mean, that's clearly not the case. I mean, every if you look at the science that isn't just group-based average, we respond in different ways to everything all the time. Not only do you know will me and you respond differently, but I will respond differently in a year's time or two years' time than I'll respond now to the same intervention. So I'm going really a long kind of twisted way around saying what I think a lot of this boils down to is linear systems are predictable. Complex adaptive systems are not predictable. Outcomes are not predictable. It would be lovely for us as practitioners if things were predictable. Oh, wouldn't it be just, John? I would, <laughs> I would, lo- I, I would just love that. <laughs> well, we all would because we could control things and I could sit in my on my throne in my, you know, and and pontificate and devise programs and deliver them to robotic athletes, knowing that this will get you to where you want, where clearly that isn't the case. Clearly it's not the case because I do not know how you will respond. And that is the truth. I do not know how you will respond to this. Me and you can work out a best guess of what we think might work and try that. And that's the way I'd like to work with you. But that's not the conventional way we work. The conventional way we work is you take the responsibility, you assume the kind of mantle of, uh, I can tell you what to do. Yeah, and, and I was like that, you know, for, for the longest time. It was very slow for the penny to drop with me, but you think, actually, I'm not giving this person a good service here. I need to engage them. I need to find out what they believe, what they think. I need. We need to not uh, have this kind of cookie cutter off the shelf solution, but evolve a context specific solution for this person, given their background, their training background, their injury history, and their set of beliefs. And uh, yeah, and that's that's not something that you ever learn in a coaching course or. Uh, um, you know, any educational uh, input I ever had, it was never, okay, well, how do you assess, you know, I, I know how to assess your squat, your three rep max. I know how to do all kinds of eccentric testing. I know how to do this and that. But what about assessing your beliefs and your assumptions? Is that important? I think it is. I think it clearly is. I think there's clearly evidence there it is. Do we do that? Do we check people's beliefs at the door? And then, talk them through, modulate them, adapt to them, uh, customize to them, or have the debate and, and discussion if necessary to, to see if you can change them. Yeah, I, I mean, even if we got, take something as simple, not as simple as strength, but as in a conceptually, uh, you know, simple way, you know, some days you'll go to the gym and you will feel great and you will express lots and lots of strength everything will go up really really easily and then another day you will go to the gym and you know your strength hasn't particularly maybe changed um from a physiological sense your cross-sectional area of your muscle will be reasonably similar you know your neural drive may be quite similar but your actual ability to lift things up and put them down on that day in the gym is not the same um, and, and I think that, that we often see these concepts as quite simple and linear and stable. But even something just as simple as playing sport, 
you know, it, when, when you can internally feel it, you know, often it feels you can you internally you sense that, you know, unpredictable nature of of of, um, of kind of these type of things. Brilliant. Okay, so I'm going to go off piece again here, but you can just. I know the piece is very big, John. We're on you, can edit, <laughs> you, you can edit it out or play it to the guys, guys in the pub for a, for a laugh. But um, yeah, first thing that comes to mind there is so what, what you're talking about there, what you alluded to was some days you're in the zone. Yeah, I, I love that. It's a great description. You're in the zone. Yeah, now, here's, here'd be my approach. If I'm working with you, what I got to say, what I'm saying to you is, don't tell me you're not in the zone. Let's learn. Let's experiment. Let's make sure we get in the zone. And if we're not in the zone at the appointed time, we need a strategy to get you there. Because changing your... Um, the approach that you walk into, let's say it's the gym, you mentioned strength training. You come into the gym, what's the first thing you do? Do you just like, oh, I'll do a quick warm-up and then I'll get under the bar? Or, oh, no, okay, first of all, what are my objectives? Okay, let's go through those. Let's be clear in those. What type of level of intensity? What kind of mindset do I need for this? Okay, now I need to get into that. I feel shitty. You know, the, 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 the kids were up all night, blah, blah, blah. Okay. What's my strategy for putting that behind me and making sure I'm in the right place from a, a motivational and readiness perspective? And, you know, it's it's developing a process that you have. So no matter what happens before, when you walk in, you have a kind of a, a reset and then a now I'm going to get to where I need to be to make this session productive. Um, and again, that's not something we ever learn in kind of SNC school or whatever, whatever that might be. But I think that taking care of or helping helping someone to take care of their their attitude, their motivation, their sense of readiness, their sense of uh, ownership and competence of the process by giving them the tools to you need to get in the right place. If you feel shitty the day of the Olympic final, what are you going to do? Are you going to sit down and cry? Or are you just going to plug into your process? Um, so sorry, I went back from that. No, no, I, I think what, what you kind of, what, what I heard from you there, John, was really that what you're trying to do with that kind of approach, your mindset, is given this complex, unstable, you know, a non-linear system, you are trying to create a set of processes that tries to manage that to some degree. That tries to, yeah, that helps you optimise within yes. a given set of circumstances. Yes, absolutely. Now, there was one other point that came to mind, and again, I'm kind of going off topic, but just it might be interesting to people is, conventionally, we assume that if you do, you know, if you do the same type of training, like I said, me and you do the same training, we yeah. will get different results. The study last year of Australia, they did the same type of training with identical twins. Yeah. So genetically, boom, the same. Yeah, so from the same egg twins. Yes, yeah. well, they did it both. They did it, uh, Monozygotic. And yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Dizygotic. Dizygotic, yeah. Yeah, different outcomes. Yeah. So, okay. So now 
from a, if you're as a, as a practitioner, you're thinking, well, what does dictate how somebody responds? And obviously, it's not one thing. It's not your prior training. It's not your necessarily your body type. It's not even your genetics. It's obviously you would imagine that all of those have some bearing and some influence. But there's other things like you mentioned stress. Yeah. So stress as a concept, and I guess we know this from from the the, the sports injury literature. If you're stressed, that is a that's a really that's well up there as, as a risk factor, yeah. you know, more so than most of the physiomechanical ones that the, the, the people argue about. Okay, so there's things like stress, anxiety, um, and yeah, so your psycho-emotional state has a strong influence on how you respond to any given training. Uh, and I guess you could you could tie this to the world of placebo research to say, well, your beliefs, your expectations, you know, they also have an influence on subjective experience, but I think they also have an influence on how your internal resources, energetic, immunological, neurological, how they are directed. Yeah. Now, you're looking at me, sorry, <laughs> I might have confused things there, so let, let me just say it a different way Here, here's the way I think of it uh, your brain is there it's locked in this kind of dark room it has this sensory information coming through based on prior experience of that you know this pattern of sensory information normally leads to this sensory outcome your brain makes a decision do I withhold resources or do I spend resources yeah. So if you think of stress, what is stress? Stress is really just, there's a lot of uncertainty about your future. Oh my God, I have an exam or, you know, FA Cup final tomorrow, whatever it is. You get, you get stressed. Um, stress is uncertainty. Yeah. What, what do you do with resources when you're highly stressed? You conserve them. You yeah. do not spend them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You save and conserve. And we see this manifest in all types of ways from, you know, how you lay down abdominal fat to, you know, everything. I think, I forget what the stat is. I think it's maybe 85% of GP visits are stress-related at the moment. You know, some, you know, stress has a big impact, psychologically, emotionally, physically. Uh, right. Just trying to get back on track now. Oh, yeah. So, so that's that's stress. Now, obviously, stress there's there's the positive side to it in terms of it is it is preparing, it is you looking into the future and thinking, yeah, you know what? I don't know how this game, this match, this this injury, this session is going to go, but I feel good about it because I have reasons to feel good about it. I know I can handle it. I'm in good hands. I really trust the person I'm working with. I think we have a good plan that they've clearly explained to me. You have a totally different neurological, neurochemical experience, an experience that sets you up for success rather than setting you up for failure. Yeah. And I've just gone a really, really circuitous route to kind of, I guess, justify my own statement that, 
lots and lots of things contribute to how you adapt to any given exercise intervention. Lots and lots. And a lot of them, and perhaps even the most important, are non-physical factors. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just to, to expand on that, I do remember a study done in university students many years ago. And I think they took a bunch of students that were doing their exams and then they took a bunch of students that weren't doing exams and they measured some of the, the, the physiological changes to the training that they did. And they found that the, 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 uh, the, the students under exam conditions or in this period of exams exhibited a lot less physiological change than students that weren't under um, the, the same kind of stressful scenarios, which, which, is, which kind of ties in what you're saying. And there was another um, view, uh, a study they did into triathletes, and what they found is triathletes have quite a high natural level of hypoalgesia. So they're good, they've got good systems, you know, in terms of, you know, pain killing, for want of a better expression. You know, in response to a, a painful stimulus, um, you know, they, they felt less they felt less pain, you know, whether that's pressure or, or whatever they used. And actually what they found is it, that if they tied that into stress levels, the triathletes lost that natural hypoalgesic response. So two different situations there with that, that stress seems to play a really, really important factor, I think. Well, I mean, it certainly is. Uh, what's the best? I think... So I actually, so as you mentioned, I've written about stress before and its influence on training outcomes and injury specifically. Uh, Okay, when you break down what stress is, it's one of these real umbrella terms that we use all the time in everyday life. It's not really very well defined. Uh, Again, I was going to say what I think of it is, but the, the people that I looked to in the research, the way they who were who are you know really really good on this, they think of it more as uncertainty. Yes. Now you can tie that to placebo and nocebo as well. So for me, stress, placebo, and nocebo are two two sides sides of the same coin, or three sides of the same coin, or whatever it is. Um, an interesting coin that is, John. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. It's a tricky Irish coin. Um, <laughs> but really what it is, is you are projecting, what does my future hold? Yeah. If I get, uh, you know, I go into the doctor and I see the certs on the wall and they're really engaged, they're not looking at their phone, blah, blah, blah. They're listening to me, they're asking questions. And I'm thinking, I like this doc. You know, I'm looking, looking at the plume on the wall. Okay, so my forecast of what's going to happen to me next improves. What happens when psychologically I recognize, I make that positive evaluation? Okay, so neurochemically, I'm going to release more resources. I'm not going to conserve and protect. I'm going to, okay, you know what? I can afford to relax, to to be to relax in my physical austerity, if you like. Um, and that puts me into a position where I'm more likely to positively respond. So there's a direct link between my perception of what's going to happen next and the resources I release in anticipation of this slightly better future. Nocebo, I'm thinking, whoop, 
I need to throttle back on the resources here. I, I need to conserve. Uh, and, and, and that sets in motion a very different train of events. And certainly in the, you know, in the research I'm most kind of invested in in terms of uh, sports and physical performance, placebo and nocebo effects are, are you know, very real effects and make very demonstrable uh, improvements in a lot of circumstances, not in all circumstances, but uh, yeah, okay, I feel like I need you to help get me back on track here. Uh, no, well, I, I like that what you brought up there, you know, this idea of stress and uncertainty, because I think if we look at prognostic factors in musculoskeletal rehabilitation, um, you know, how we deal with uncertainty, how it um, you know, whether that be diagnostic, whether it is, you know, outcomes for the future, etc., do seem to play, uh, you know, quite a large role. Um, uh, and so I like that kind of, you know, link between understanding stress and uncertainty and then also understanding that these are quite well-defined prognostic factors that we see as well. So I think that kind of epitomizes that element of, um, you know, that that complex system to some degree. But... The only thing I, I think I'd probably think about here is, the, is this idea of non-linearity in the sense that sometimes I think we look at it from the outside so that we can say, well, this must be stressful for this person. You know, this is this. Uh, uh, and But actually, this person thrives in that stress or they have, you know, a lot of stress doesn't have a big impact on them. Whereas we might have another person and we look at it from the outside and we say, God, they, they're not very stressed. Look, they've got everything in the world. But actually, a little bit of stress seems to have quite a large impact on the way that they, you know, whether that creates uncertainty, free energy principles, these kind of things. Um, you know, so so I think you brought up a really nice term, which is perception of stress. Do you think that's the most important thing? Uh, yes, yeah. I do. Is that the long or the short answer, John? <laughs> no, that is the... The holy all of it. It is a, yeah. It is. A, it's a perception. It's a perception based on prior experiences, yeah. Yeah. beliefs, expectations, and also contextual factors. Yeah. Current contextual factors. So that, I guess, sets us up with okay. Well, there's opportunity here is to enhance our delivery of interventions if we start to. Like I said, I mean, a, a big one for me would be, okay, what are someone's perceptions before we even start? Let's get, let's get their beliefs. Let's document yeah. those. And then let's have a conversation. I don't want to say you're trying to change their beliefs to match with yours, yeah. but let's, let's find common ground. So we're both embarking on a process that we both are invested in and we feel we've co-designed and have co-ownership. And over time, you would, pass that farm, that ownership out to the athlete slash, you know, client, uh, patient, whatever it is. So, so yes, and I guess, and I, I didn't explain it well, and I'm sorry, but I think for me, uncertainty and the resolution of uncertainty is the basis of perceptions in a sense. Okay. If you, if you, if you were uncertain, now, when I talk, when I mention uncertainty here, there's uncertainty in the outside environment, but then there's your sense of, can I cope with this uncertainty? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's not just external uncertainty. It's, 
you know what, shitty situation, but I've been here before and I can do this. Different kettle of fish thing. Yeah. So, so the, I suppose then the question would be, is the resolution of uncertainty certainty or tolerance of uncertainty? <laughs> oh. Do you see what I'm trying to get at? I think that for some people... Yeah. Getting like resolving uncertainty would be getting a certain answer. So I don't know what the diagnosis is. And then someone comes along and tells me that it's this diagnosis. So uncertainty solved. Or is it sometimes about being more tolerant that there is an uncertainty there and that there maybe isn't an answer? So so I I think there's two sides to that. Does that does that make some sense? Yeah, it does. Um okay, so I don't. Yeah, let, let me come back with that, but saying we live in an uncertain world. We are complex systems navigating yeah. other complex systems within complex systems, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> it is uncertain. Yeah. Uh, we can resolve uncertainty by developing very negative habits. Um, some of those might be conscious and some subconscious, or we can go the other way and develop, you know, uh, acceptance, And then what skills do I need to navigate this uncertainty robustly? So you can do either. It can be detrimental and damaging and destructive, or you can harness it and think, okay, well, this is how I handle this. And I am confident, not that I can predict the future, but but that I can navigate the future. I can cope. Yeah. Uh, And that would be very similar to, say, someone with chronic pain. That they, 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 you know, I have this chronic pain situation. I don't know what is causing it. There's an inherent uncertainty here, an inherent stress. And maybe that's affecting my level of pain. Maybe that's affecting my ability to cope with that level of pain. And I suppose for some people I've met in my career, there's a journey of how do I minimize uncertainty by finding the answer? And when I find the answer, I'm going to get the diagnosis, I'm going to get the cure. And then for some other people, you know, you you just use that term. Maybe there's more an element of acceptance that I'm going to accept that maybe there isn't a simple diagnosis. And that's maybe acceptance. We are these complex nonlinear systems. And then to say, well, actually, not what is this problem, but how can I navigate this problem? Um, and I think that sounds very, very similar to, to, to how, you know, you just explained that in terms of, you know, maybe there's a couple of approaches there that, that we see people struggle with, one being, you know, minimising uncertainty through certainty versus minimising uncertainty, or not minimising uncertainty, maybe navigating that uncertainty. Yeah, um, and I, the pain one is is obviously it's the most researched and it's 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 fascinating, but the realm that that I kind of operate in would be yeah. different to to yours and. One of the things that I found is when you confront, you know, okay, first of all, if you are, a, you know, a professional rugby player and you have persistent pain, yeah, there's all these anxieties wrapped around that. Hundred percent. You know, if I if I do something slightly wrong, it's just going to go. Yeah, yeah. Whereas you go, hang on, why do we believe that? And I don't think that's necessarily the case. This pain may just be something that's going to hang around for the rest of your life. But you know what? If you take away all the anxiety, take away all the worry, just think it's, it's just a feature. Yeah. It's just something that happens when I do this. Does it really hurt? Well, actually, no, it's just a bit of discomfort, but I, I worry about it a lot. Yeah, yeah. 
And if you, you know, and you know where I'm going, you're just trying to educate away from that worry, maybe put the, the player into situations where they're uh, controlling that pain through be it slow movement or perturbation type stuff. And they're just getting some degree of, you know what? It's not, if I get it wrong, it hurts a little bit, but it only hurts a little bit. Yeah. Once I wash it and once I scrub away the anxiety, it's not that bad. And what then is, is pain? Is pain a, a true reflection of a sensory, you know, of a signal? Or is it just that sensory signal wrapped in all these assumptions and perceptions? And, you know, this is what this pain means. And, or sorry, this is what this, this signal means. And you quote it in all these negative associations. Strip it back down and just go, hey, it's just something. It'll probably be there forever, but it doesn't matter. Well, yeah, again, yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head there, John. And this is something that I often talk about as well. Is it's the it's the meaning that we give to it, and it's the you know there there is there is a signal and there's a sensation, and then as you say, we wrap that in you know fear for the future. We wrap that in am I going to be able to play again? You know, we wrap that in am I going to get a new contract? Um, and then suddenly we have like a Russian doll of a problem. You know, the pain and the sensation might be exactly the same still, but we've wrapped it in all these other, you know, meanings and modifiers. And, uh, yeah, uh, and I, I you know, I, but I, I think it's important to point out that the process you talked about there with a the rugby player probably isn't very different to the, the what you might have with a non-athletic person. You know, it's just some of the worries might be different or the context in themselves might be different. I think humans inherently are very, very good at, um, you know, worrying about things, it would seem. I guess I don't know enough about that world to confidently say that. And I feel it might be different with with chronic pain, um, okay. chronic pain verging on a disability. Okay. Where the, you know, versus I'm a young, fit, you know, relatively affluent soccer player or rugby player and I have a slight pain in my knee when I decelerate. Yeah, no, no. I, 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 yeah. I just feel they're different. Um, I, I think what I, was, what I was trying to get across was that, you know, human beings, regardless sometimes of, of maybe, you know, those aspects still worry and they still create, you know, the problem. But, it, but where, you know, where you're correct is that, the demographic might be different and, uh, you know, and, and these type of things as well. So there is definitely a potentially a different context there. Well, let me, um, let me, like, get, just to get away from pain. <laughs> uh, I think perceptions, perceptions, cognitions, and emotions, however you want to slice those up, or if you can't even slice them up. But my perspective is that they regulate resources. Yeah, they direct yeah. resources based on a forecast. What's going to happen to me next? What resources do I need to put in there? And how those resources are regulated are very much, uh, you know, belief-based, expectancy-based. And they're things that we can change. So, I mean, uh, let me see. What's a good example? Did you ever hear of Henry Beecher? I'm, I'm going to tell you the story just... Uh, you go for it, John. I'm up, I'm up for a story. Okay, so there was a guy called Henry Beecher. He was he was the Surgeon General, I think, the US Army, World War II, in kind of Italy, 
um, the European theatre anyway. And he noticed when he was at on his battlefield visits that instead of being, I forget what the, the painkiller was at the time, um, but instead of, because they had run out of supplies, they were giving the patients saline. Yeah. And patients felt fine after the saline. Uh, you know, so there was a big, a big placebo effect. Uh, he also noticed that when they did tell people that they were running short of uh, whatever opioid it was, that they were saying, well, no, I don't need it. Give, give it to the person in the bed beside me. So he reckoned that, uh, I forget exactly now, it was either 20 or 25% of patients in the battlefield hospital when offered painkillers said yes. All the rest said, no, no, I don't need it. Wow. Now, he had worked in Massachusetts General in Boston before the war. And obviously, you know, you get gunshot wounds, you get car crashes, you know, the whole gamut of, of injury. And... His observation there was like 85% up of people with what he was saying was the same injuries were pretty much begging for painkillers. And he went and he wrote, it was, the, I think, the first peer-reviewed paper in placebo. It was called The Powerful Placebo in JAMA in 1955. But that was his observation. It was just that meaning, your sense of meaning, yeah. your sense of purpose, so a soldier who is injured but alive is going home. It has survived the war, has survived a, a kind of a, a productive endeavor, has done something worthwhile. If you're robbing a bank in Boston and you get shot, you're full of worry and anxiety. So theoretically, let's say, thought experiment, the exact same injury. The only thing different is the context and your outlook and what it is likely to mean for your future. You have kind of, uh, you're going to be celebrated as an injured soldier in your future in one, and in the other one, you are, well, you're facing the future of, you've no work and you're injured and blah, 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 you know, your, your name is Maud, et cetera, et cetera. So that was just a brief uh, diversion. Courtesy of me, Ben, I thought you might appreciate the story. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um... You know, you can cut it out. It comes, I think it does, it brings us right back round though to, to kind of, you know, the complex system is almost the antidote for that very basic biomedical model, isn't it? Where it's, you know, very much about the damage to the tissue, you know, and, and that should be a fairly linear representation of what you should experience and not much should really affect you outside of that. Um, and I think the complex system just starts to allow us to, to kind of say, well, maybe there is a little bit more to it. Well, I guess if there was, yeah, if there was a kind of a, a, a take-home, it would be conventionally, in fitness training rounds and in therapy treatment rounds, it's very mechanical. Yeah. It's very mechanical logic. And it's very much to simplify the complexity of it, we'll break it down that there's an off-the-shelf answer, there's an off-the-shelf diagnosis, and we know exactly what to do under these con con conditions. But that's not the case. Every no stop. Every case is uh, that's my yeah, yeah, no, 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 we know. Don't worry, mate. It's, we know what the kids are like. <laughs> um, 
but yeah, but but I guess it opens up a whole uh, spectrum of opportunities for us to advise people on other ways that they can influence. In my world, fitness outcomes, maybe in your world, more pain outcomes. It's not just mechanical. It is not a kind of a life sentence. There is ways that you can... Um, there's other habits of thought, uh, of emotional control, of beliefs that you can modulate to modulate physiological outcomes. You know, the one thing I, I, I kind of I'm, I'm thinking about here, John, is is how this integrates with our kind of obsession with evidence-based practice as well is because I think sometimes evidence-based practice can lead us to this idea that you do this program in this research paper and you get this mean outcome you know and I think sometimes that perpetuates that kind of of of, of, of thought process I don't know what what your perspective on that might be oh no I mean I would Totally agree with that. And I think it's not that there's anything wrong with conventional experimentation in the peer review process. Yeah, yeah. It's just that we need to be grown-ups and think, well, they can't tell me what's going to work here in this complex environment in a completely different context. Uh, but it can give a hint. Yes, 100%. Yeah, yeah. Because no, the, the opposite end of that, yeah, the opposite end of that is just do what you want because I've seen it work before, et cetera. And I don't think I'd ever advocate that either. But I do think when we have the idea of a complex system in our minds, sometimes it should influence the way that we interpret lots of this information that we have around us. Yeah, and I think um, one, of the, one of the key things with, like there's a lot of decision-making research, not necessarily in our worlds, but in... in uh, the worlds of complex systems, be it military decision-making or stock market, economic decision-making, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And the, the, the one thing that keeps coming back here is that the people that are the best decision-makers aren't the people that stick to these rigid rules of thought, that don't stick to, well, this is what the framework says, so this is what I should do. They do not plug into an algorithm. There are people who stop, think deeply, where possible, measure and evaluate their um, their predictions. I think we will get better in four weeks. Uh, there are also people who ask other people, what do you think? And don't just ask someone who's a kind of a, uh, your identical thought twin, you know, yeah, don't yeah. ask someone who agrees with them. But yeah, the, there's a in the decision making literature. There's there's, there's kind of a, a way that they talk about this. Team it, meaning collaborate. Ask someone. Run your logic by someone. Team it. Track it. Train it. Right. Uh, track it means if you can measure it, measure it. Even if you can only measure it in a fuzzy way, you will learn something. Yeah. Yeah. Over time, uh, team it, track it, train it, and train it means. Uh, just really briefly in complex decision making worlds people have become uh, much better decision makers by just understanding the basic nature of probabilistic thinking yeah. by basically understanding what we've just talked about you cannot predict you do not know what's going to happen 
So when you're making your decisions, you need to be a lot less certain than you are. You need to act, you know, or you need to be a little less confident than you are. You need to have your antenna up for the fact that your logic could be completely wrong. And that decision-making humility is a powerful antidote to bad bad decision-making. The other other thing that came out of this that is kind uh, kind of good to hear in a way is that there is no relationship between your decision-making confidence and your decision-making ability. Right, in fact, right. the most confident expert decision-makers tend to be the worst. Right. When you evaluate their decisions over long periods of time, the people who are uh, more decision-making humility, who don't automatically know the right answer, who are less um, strident than this is the way to go, they're the people that make the better decisions in complex environments over the long run. What does this mean for us as practitioners? Well, I, I think uh, you obviously, you, you can't go into a bubble and think about every patient you see in your example for six hours. Uh, but what you can do is just think, okay, well, maybe I need to be less formulaic. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe I need to... Uh, talk, interact with people who have different perspectives or from different domains. Uh, and maybe I need to think about how I can perhaps measure things, even in the absence of good measures. Yeah, yeah. So again, in, in, in a lot of the decision-making research, people are making, I predict that, I don't know, Russia, Ukraine will end in somewhere between three and five weeks. I'm predicting that was 75%. Yeah, uh, probability. Getting into those type of probabilistic thinking habits improves your decision-making ability in the long run. So I think those type of things will start to percolate into our worlds, but but not yet. Yeah, well, I, I think that, you know, one thing, if I'm going to kind of come at it from my experience, I'd say, you know, if I'm going to choose an exercise in rehab now, you know, it's going to be, I think this is the most likely going to help based on your presentation, your needs, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same point, you have to be open to adapting the dosage, you know, changing the exercise, you know, all of these other things. And and I, and I see a lot more of what I do now as a kind of an iterative cyclic process of whereby, you know, we try and get a bit of a baseline and then we try over a period of time to get closer to what I would see as an optimal dosage or an optimal program that seems to have a good effect. And I think we need to move away from, you know, as you said before, that kind of formulaic, you know, you know, uh, kind of algorithmic thinking where it's, you know, this is the problem, this is the exercise, this is the dosage, this is going to reduce this pain level by this much in the next 10 weeks. You know, that would be, I think we need to be more iterative generally. No, absolutely. I totally agree with that. But I'm going to disagree with a couple of things just to be honest. Perfect, perfect. Um, I agree with that. And I think that kind of, uh, we're only going to plan our first step. Yeah. And then we're we're going to fail fast. We're going to tweak as we go. Yeah. No, um, I I think that's an essential. So it's not necessarily a disagreement, but the other things I'd add is, for me, a factor would be, what do they think? What do they believe? Uh, absolutely, yeah, 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 yeah. And the, the other element then would be some education in terms of where, where education is, me and you having a chat, well, why do you think that? Or do you know that 
you know, uh, whatever example, uh, a lot of pain, pain isn't necessarily indicative of risk, for yeah. example, something yeah. like that. So I think there's education stuff in there as well. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, no, I, I mean, look, I, I'm, I'm quite a big proponent of, you know, shared decision-making and, and education and, and these kind of things as well. I would also probably suggest that they can be quite iterative in the sense that education, you know, sometimes you might start out with one way of describing something and you might have to change how you describe it based on someone's level of understanding or or, or, or what have you. Um, and I think the same is probably true sometimes of, of shared decision-making, that sometimes people have quite opposing views uh, and actually, you know, that, that sometimes you kind of come to a middle point as well through education, through experience uh, and, and stuff like that. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think kind of what we're feeling around the edges of there is that there's nearly, um, you know, for me and based on the principles that we've talked about, to be your optimal practitioner self, there needs to be um, an, an open-mindedness there. Yeah, 100%. Because, you know, all of these physical things we're talking about or what we assume are physical things are not just physical things. They're, they're all tied together in that kind of complex network of the complex adaptive system, yeah. which gives us lots of points where we can positively influence or negatively influence yeah. um, outcomes. And I think that's a, that's a good thing to kind of sit with for a while and think, well, am I optimising all the different little toggles that I, I could be optimizing. Yeah, and, and, and I suppose it's also not always needing to have all the answers at the beginning. And I think sometimes that's certainly what I was taught, that, you know, you need to have the perfect program or you need to have the perfect test or you need to have, you need to eat with evidence, like what works and what doesn't work, you know, or what's the optimal program for this NEOA or, or, or getting someone returned to play. Um, and, and, you know, it's losing that mindset that all the answers happen before the person's even turned up. Because I think sometimes that's the way that we educate people, that, that you're meant to know the answers, you're meant to then apply them. Whereas there's so many different things that probably play into this that, that we need to be aware of. And, and, and we also need to, you know, as you say, be a little more humble in our decision making. Yeah. Um... Uh, I agree, and I think that as practitioners, there's lots of different areas of science that are bubbling up. Like conventionally, we learn just the, our core science, if you like. Yeah. Now, obviously, nobody has time to be diving into all of them, but I guess we've been conditioned to think about this is what you need to know. Know this, and you will be good. Yeah. But really, one of the things we need to figure out is how do I think? How do I approach? What's my process? Yeah. Uh, and your process, you know, we spend so much time thinking about just the mechanical aspects of it. First, I'll do this, then we'll do this. How do I present? Uh, do I come across? Do I communicate clearly? Yeah. Am I consistent in my messaging? Yada, 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 yada. All these type of things. And for, for me, like a few years ago, I just kind of realized oh, I'm not catering for any of this stuff. I am not doing a good job. I might be, you know, might look good in an Excel sheet or you might be working with great yeah. athletes, but that doesn't mean you're good. 
Right. <laughs> Just because you're working with high caliber people doesn't mean that you yourself are a good practitioner. Um, so I started to put processes in place. Um, and I'm kind of a messy, kind of off-the-cuff person. So, but like I put structures in place, yeah. like what are the, what's the first thing I need to do with the athlete? Uh, how do I, in a very, very brief period uh, with our time frame, get a message across to them? Here's what we're here to do. Here's how you need to feel. How do I, get, how do I farm out that little bit of education in a acceptable miniature dose and then add to that the next day and add to that the next day. So you're you're constantly building. Yeah. Um so so yeah, I, I think that going through that has been certainly for me as a practitioner has been has been really, really productive. And it's just rules and regulations that we were never taught in here's how you coach an athlete school. Yeah, yeah, and I, 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 I try. I kind of discuss it in a similar way as kind of what is your personal philosophy? You know, what, what, what makes you tick? What makes you think? What interests you? And they really do influence the way that we do things. I think um, just sometimes we need to tweak them a little bit, and sometimes we need to improve it a little bit. And uh, and I and and yeah, I, I think we could all think a little bit more about how we think and about what we do and and these type of things. Yeah, and I guess just to finish up, because I know you're looking at your watch there. I haven't even got a watch <laughs> But yeah, yeah. We, we, yeah, uh, yeah I, I think certainly when I've put my own kind of practice under under the microscope and, and kind of tried to wipe away all, you know, that kind of, that way where we all instinctively look at ourselves as if we're, you know, we're good we're good because of X, Y, and Z, and it's easy to construct that story in your head. But I, I think consistency with athletes is, is a really, really important thing, consistency of messaging. Yeah. Uh, and not, you know, if the athlete says something to me now, I write it down because I want to remember it. I yeah. don't want them to say the same thing a hundred times and think this guy isn't even listening. So, and I think all those small things where I used to put so much thought into, oh, well, how tight do I need the band or will I go single leg or double leg or all these things I spent so much time thinking about. I'm thinking, okay, I need to do that, but it's not the most important stuff. And it's not even the easiest stuff. Or, you know, it's, I need to take care of the basics first. All the other peripheral, what I thought was peripheral things, they're the meat and drink. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic take-home message, John. I think you've finished on a crescendo, which is, which is very, very nice. So I'd like to, to – it wasn't that we went off piste. We just had a really big piste. I think that's a better way to look at it. So well, so it's been it's been a real pleasure from, from my perspective to talk to you. Well, Ben, i, I got to say I was quite nervous coming on because I didn't know where we were going. Um, I would have been born – <laughs> I would have been more nervous if I knew we'd end up going the places we did, but I enjoyed the conversation and thank you. Yeah, good, Matt. Look, look, I think actually these type of things, there's lots and lots of crossover. So I think we are just a lot of the time coming at the same stuff from slightly different perspectives. And I think there's a lot of value in those discussions because of that. Amen. Good. Well, what a pleasure, John. I look forward, uh, hopefully, to meeting you in real life at some point, and we can share maybe a pint of the black stuff. Um, For sure. 
I'm I'm actually in Dublin at a conference in July. Um, but yeah, we, we can talk about that. But there you go. Thank you so much for coming on, John. I appreciate you.